the law didn't require that those food businesses actually list the full ingredients. And that's how we got caught out and paid the ultimate price with the death of our child. In July 2016, 15-year-old Natasha Ednan Laparus and her father boarded the flight from London to Nice after having eaten a shop-bought sandwich. As someone with severe allergies, she had checked its list of ingredients before buying it and even closely inspected it. The two EpiPens she was carrying made little difference when it turned out the product contained sesame, which she was severely allergic to. Natasha went into anaphylactic shock and died. People should not have to go through this again or die losing one's child. There is nothing worse than that. That is the worst death. In this series so far, we've heard how powerful plant and fungal substances can be for humans, from the chemicals that can heal us to those that can poison. Yet we have a tendency to think of the natural world as our friend. Does this mislead us into underestimating the power of naturally occurring substances to cause us harm? And how do modern relationships with the manufacture and production of food also detach us from what can be life-changing decisions. A loophole in the food labeling law meant that a Pret-a-Manger baguette Natasha bought did not have to be accurately labeled by the seller. And it was for this reason alone that she suffered a severe sesame reaction and died. There's an awful lot that we need to learn. And of course, it could be another related species that is in our diet that makes us slightly predisposed to be sensitive to something else. This is a field that definitely needs more work on. When people have a very severe response, it's kind of overactivation of their immune response. You know, what's triggering it? And why are some plants triggering it more than others? Diverse diets and modern food production mean it can be difficult for even the most hyper-aware person to know exactly what they're eating. And this can have devastating effects. Today I'm asking if we can really be safe if we don't know the source of the plant material we eat. I'll be hearing from scientists on how they're working to make a safer world for all of us. And I'll be talking to Natasha's parents who embarked on a fight to change British law after their daughter's death. It was immediately apparent that there was a problem in the food labeling section for this country and something needed to be done about it. So absolutely, we were not going to let this pass without taking action to help save other people. I'm James Wong, and welcome to Unearthed, Mysteries from an Unseen World, from Royal Botanic Gardens Q. It's been four years since Natasha passed away. In that time, her grieving parents had been determined that no one else should experience the same senseless loss of a loved one. I had some time with Natasha's mother and father, Tanya and Nadim, to hear how the experience moved them to change UK law. Nadim and Tanya, tell me about your daughter, Natasha, and her allergies. She was a really easy baby, textbook baby, but we noticed at about 12 weeks old, um, she reacted quite badly to her first immunizations. That was the first sign that there was something wrong. And at six months old, we were on holiday and I gave her a tiny bit of banana and she had an anaphylactic reaction. 
And just after she turned one, she had her first asthma attack. I recall it uh, makes parenting very difficult and fraught with anxiety. There's very little knowledge about food allergy or anaphylaxis for that matter. Natasha, when on reflection, Natasha was extremely sensible. She wouldn't just grab anything and try it out of peer pressure. She had a real sense of that she had to ask and the food had to be checked thoroughly. And we were her guardians. We were her inadvertently, her scientists, if you like, for her in that sense to check and see if it was okay. Mm. And only with a, if we gave it a green light in, in one way or another could, could she try it. She was a bit of a scientist, wasn't she? Because yes. of how she'd had to live. Unbeknown to the public, unbeknown to us, manufactured foods in a factory by law uh, had to contain all the ingredients uh, spelt out on the label, including in bold for the 14 well-known allergens, food that was produced not in a factory, basically, so on site somewhere, but then wrapped and packaged in a very similar, if not sometimes identical way to a factory produced item. The law didn't require that, that those food businesses actually list the full ingredients. So sometimes they listed none at all. Sometimes they listed the partial ingredients uh, and so on so it was a real mishmash of situation and that's how we got caught out and paid the ultimate price with the death of our child tell me about that day how did that play out well it was a started in a very normal way the first day actually of school holidays myself natasha and her best friend bethany we were flying out to the south of france to nice early morning, in fact, the first flight out of Heathrow Airport on that day, to, to spend four days having a, having a good time, really, on holiday for a short break, just for the two girls, really. I was there as their chaperone, and Bethany was 14 years old, and Natasha was 15 years old, and they were best friends. And um, at Heathrow Airport, all of us actually were hungry from getting up early, and Pret-a-Manger was there in Terminal 5. So we went there, and I said to told us so Natasha and the girls to look at what they wanted to to buy, and and that's 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 a coded message. That means they don't just pick and grab anything. It'll be thoroughly inspected by them and myself in the normal way that we'd always done for our whole life. So Natasha picked up a sandwich. It had olives. It had red peppers and artichokes written on the label stuck to the actual sandwich wrapper. And we looked at the the sandwich as well visually because you could see it it looked absolutely fine nothing wrong with the what was written on it ingredient wise we bought it along with some other things and started to eat it and Natasha started to have an itchy throat very quickly and Natasha had some pyriton which is nothing particularly unusual about that and we thought fine everything will be fine but it really the whole situation exploded and got far worse on the plane uh, when we're flying probably over Somewhere over, I believe, northern France, somewhere around that time, Natasha became particularly unwell and went into anaphylactic shock. The worst possible situation you could be in for getting access to medical care. Yes, I think that's it. And we'd never been in this situation before. Um, and you know, I speak about it calmly now, but uh, it, it, it's shocking what actually happens and how it unfolds at its speed. When you're caught in an aeroplane, in, in a, an aluminium metal tube, 
it's terrifying because there's really nowhere to go and there's really no help to get of in, in the conventional sense of getting to a hospital and having proper treatment. You're trapped in a, in a prison in midair and you're dying. It, it is unbelievable, actually, when you, for, just shocking. So often people carry EpiPens for security in the, in the case of an allergic reaction, but that didn't work in Natasha's case. I actually administered both pens in quick succession, basically. So she had two adult doses of adrenaline injected into her thighs. And we thought that would be fine. We thought that would, the world would you know, come back and self-right again, but not so. Tanya, you were in the UK. How did it feel being so far away? It seemed like no time at all had passed when um, Nadim phoned me. That was actually when the plane was just landing, he called. And he said, Natasha's really ill. You've just got to get a flight here as soon as possible. You've got to come out to Nice. I um, was waiting in the gate and then it was announced that the plane was going to be six hours late, which for me was just at that point, terrible, because I just needed to be with her. So it was an extra six hours to wait. And I just remember just trying to feel and look really small so that people didn't sort of see me and what I was going through. And then um, I got a call from Nat. I, I spoke, I called Tanya later that day when it transpired she was still at the airport in Stansted Airport. And I was with Natasha and Bethany in the hospital. And then they were just about to switch off the life support machine. At the point when Nad called me to say goodbye to her, what kind of what I remember about that, that's kind of, I mean, I, I literally said goodbye to her and then I, my legs just gave way and I felt, but I just remember being conscious. I didn't want to upset people who are in the gate. I didn't want to upset the children. So what you actually want to do is you want to howl, but of course you can't. Um, and so it was just holding it in, just try, just waiting to get there. And um, I got to Nice about 2.30, quarter to three in the morning, and just got a cab straight away to the apartments. But, you know, it was all over. It was all over. I died, you know, she, she was gone. She was gone by then. Hmm. Nadim and Tanya were left with their life in pieces. And so many questions as to why their daughter had reacted so acutely to a sandwich which had no appearance of her allergens. As they grieved the loss of their child, they agreed that having answers to those questions was paramount, a decision that would make their experience even harder. We found out that there were two laws uh, really governing food in, at the end of the day, and they, there was a fork in the road. And depending on where the food was made, it either went to the left, which meant full ingredient labeling, or to the right. And it, it meant that under the law, the food company or operator did not have to say anything about what was uh, in the food. We immediately started to dig deeper into what was on earth was all this about, this food labeling business. It seemed so arcane at one level, and yet there were sort of glimmers of hope at another level where the European Union had forced, a, you know, brought about a mandatory food ingredient labeling on, on factory-produced goods. And however, the whole sandwich industry had completely fallen you know, behind or, or not taken any notice because they were governed under a different law. 
it was immediately apparent that there was a problem in the food labeling section for this country and something needed to be done about it. So absolutely, we were not going to let this pass without taking action to help save other people. I think the the really surprising thing is, if there was no labeling, it would almost be understandable. But the fact that you have half the label so if you don't if you don't see a keyword you assume it's not in there is is so much more misleading than just not having a label on there at all. So what in your investigations brought you to Q Gardens? We wanted to know that the samples that we had that we believed were sesame seeds we wanted them to be checked and in fact proven to be sesame seeds. And these sesame seeds that we had in our possession had been given to us by the funeral company, the embalmer, who had embalmed Natasha's body and removed sesame seeds, or these seeds, from her her mouth and her braces. The coroner was not, at the time, our coroner that we had at the time, was not interested to take these in as any form of evidence. And we, as Natasha's parents, were very keen to have the truth come out as to why she died, what food stuff had actually killed her. And it's these seeds from her teeth that are actually took to Kew Gardens Laboratory to to find out if they could test and prove whether, in fact, these seeds were sesame seeds. Because most people would look at the seed and go, I'm not sure what sort of seed that is. You need a specialist to check that out. And Kew Gardens was viewed as the leading place in the United Kingdom who could actually have authority over that. Tanya and Nadim began to campaign for a change to this labelling law to update the guidelines for all food manufacturers regardless of where or how the food was prepared. They called this Natasha's Law and it was passed in 2019 with a two-year grace period for companies to adapt their practices. But for the two grieving parents, it was an unimaginable feat to turn their grief into positive action on the behalf of others. When the public consultation went out as to whether Natasha's law would mean full ingredients, including obviously all allergens and everything that's in that food, or partial ingredients, only the allergens to be listed on the label, the public overwhelmingly wanted full ingredient labelling. And it really is for that transparency so that they know exactly what is in the food that they're eating. Mm. So there was opposition to this. Mm. Yes, there was. So what, what we, we became somewhat, I suppose, driven by our grief, driven by well, our strong sense of faith, actually, that the truth must prevail no matter what, at whatever cost. You know, people should not have to go through this again or die. And there was quite a lot of pushback. And it even got to points where those, those we would call them the dark forces, because nobody would own up to who they were, who were working, if you like, against what we were suggesting. They would come out using their PR companies and their trade bodies, the representative bodies for their industry sectors, who would come out and voice things on their behalf to say that what we were suggesting, i.e. a change to the law to bring it in line with the manufactured food in a factory, was just not doable and would cost a lot of money and would cost jobs, therefore. And I have to say, Tanya and myself were having absolutely none of it because we knew the truth really is what counted. And frankly speaking, 
losing a child or losing anyone, but particularly more poignant, losing one's child, nothing, there is nothing worse than that. That is the worst death. There was so much interest from the inquest. We had no idea that was going to happen. But the press and the public just came together and everybody had, so many people heard Natasha's story. I mean, it went right across the world. So there was a lot of support in that sense. And then we also were given a lot of support in government. We had no idea that was going to happen. But I think what was clear to government was that the law that was being used, and and it's very important to be clear that Pret-a-Manger didn't break any law at all in what they were doing. They were following a law that was actually inadequate. And so it was very important that Natasha's law wasn't really there to create a new law. It was to correct a law that wasn't really being used properly and for it to be implemented to actually work as it should. They saw the importance of that in government as well. So we were really, really lucky to have a lot of support in government to change this. And you did this by starting the Natasha Allergy Research Foundation. Tell me about what the foundation does. Our emphasis was in law, under law, in education, and very, very importantly, in scientific research, i.e. why are we as human beings becoming more and more food allergic? So this work is continuing, and it isn't just a a matter of claiming victory once you have Natasha's law. You're carrying on this research. Absolutely. The numbers of people who are being diagnosed with allergies of all ages, not just children, but adults who've never been allergic before suddenly becoming severely allergic to something they've eaten all their lives is increasing and becoming much more commonplace. And there are so many theories that abound, so many theories, and yet none of them are really the answer. We are fundraising. We want to really garner some amazing research to really really not just put a plaster on it and and find remedies for for allergy but to actually cure it is there any room left for secret ingredients we think that time has gone now it's so important for people to know what they're eating um certainly allergic people don't expect to be able to eat everything they know they can't and that's how they live but they have to be able to make safe decisions Clearer law, transparency in food marketing, and a wider understanding of allergies for all of us is essential. As our diets diversify and lifestyles change, research is vital in understanding how our bodies relate to different food sources and their environments. And as the work continues, the knowledge that's gained into how our immune systems behave with different materials could lead to greater understanding in how our bodies work and offer answers to many more questions of human health. Thanks for listening to Unearthed. I'll be back again in just a minute, but first here's a message from our supporter, Kim Cottrell. As a charity, the Royal Botanic Gardens Q is facing a severe funding crisis right now. The impact of coronavirus has created a financial shortfall of 15 million pounds This money is vital for the upkeep of these beautiful botanic gardens and crucial to continuing its global conservation work. Plants and fungi hold many of the answers to the world's biggest challenges, such as climate change, food security, and biodiversity loss. And Q needs to play a role in furthering the science and identifying desperately needed solutions. 
If there's one positive thing that could come out of this pandemic, it will be to encourage each and every one of us to look afresh and with urgency at these global challenges. If you are enjoying this podcast and feel inspired by the work that Q does, please go to Q.org to donate today to help not only protect Q, but also preserve the future of our planet. At the Jodrell Laboratory at Kew, scientists and researchers work on everything from plant anatomy to genetics and biochemistry, studying plants and fungi at the molecular level and cataloging them. The Jodrell is home to 60,000 specimens of plant DNA and tissue. There are labs for molecular DNA, biochemistry, wood anatomy, insectary, and many more. There's also a basement filled with 1.25 million fungi. The building is near the aquatic gardens. And when you head inside, the air is positively buzzing with the smartest minds, all at work exploring our natural world and how we can harness its mechanisms to improve all of our lives. I spoke to my hero, Professor Monique Simmons, OBE. Monique's team of chemists and biologists were called in to help by Natasha's family. I am Deputy Director of Science at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Q. I think the work with, with Natasha was important to the family in the fact that we could provide evidence that was really solid that she had taken sesame. That was the important thing we could show from our work, and that was used uh, very much in the case. We were asked if we could identify uh, seed material, uh, sesame seeds. Then the question came, would you be able to identify whether the victim had possibly had sesame, which is one of the ingredients? So it was clear that she had consumed sesame. The samples that we looked at came from the forensic side. So these were in the hands of the police. So that evidence met up with traceability because that is another very important part of our work. When it comes into queue, we sign off on it and we follow the process so we can make sure that we haven't contaminated material or we haven't mixed something up. The chain of custody really is important. So we get phoned up when something is being delivered. We get somebody to sign off when the police or the solicitors hand it over to us. So we have chain of custody all the way through. Then we were told that the family had been given a dental brace. They thought that they could see some seed material on the brace this was able to bring in the expertise of my colleagues at the Millennium Seed Bank down at Waker's Place, where they were able to identify sesame seeds, even though they were partly digested from being on the brace. The group at Q is involved in working with the regulations. We, we use our knowledge about plants, the near relatives of plants, how to identify plants uh, that can be used uh, to help you know, produce the monographs 
that are then used by regulations like the pharmacopoeia. But we also involved in the pharmacopoeia in Hong Kong and also China. So it's kind of using our experience about how you can identify material that is entering the trade. So do you think we're seeing more allergies in society? I think from what the evidence is that we are. I think it's complex to know exactly why that is happening. Maybe it is we're becoming more sensitive to some of these things. Whatever is the cases are increasing. And as we're witnessing some of those cases, uh, people are very, very sensitive to small doses. There are conferences that are taking place or there are conferences that should have been taking place to actually, you know, identify uh, a little bit more about what is going on here. And they need to bring people from different disciplines together so we have a better understanding of the immune response, because in in some cases when people have a very severe response, it's kind of overactivation of their immune response. You know, what's triggering it and why are some plants triggering it more than others? There's an awful lot that we need to learn. And of course, it could be another related species that is in our diet that makes us slightly predisposed to be sensitive to something else. This is a field that definitely needs more work on. I think understanding what's responsible for those allergic responses, what is it in either the the small peptides, the proteins, or the um, secondary metabolites, can give us a better understanding about what we should be looking for. And then it's having a better understanding on the, the body's reaction to these things. So those the two science need to come together. I think it's very good to know that the pure work that we do can have very it can help on these applied issues. Of course, we'd rather that we didn't have to use them in this way, but I think it really shows the relevance of the pure scientific research that we can do at Q. And I think it's a real justification of why it is so important to keep these taxonomic uh, validated collections that we have where we know that we have got the right species. The collections we have started 250 years ago, they've been built up over time. They are absolutely relevant to helping to solve some of today's problems. When we start to discuss the traceability of plant material in foods, it opens up other questions about how we regulate this, not just within the bounds of national law, but across international supply chains. I wanted to know how safe our food systems really are. Richard Ellis is Professor of Crop Production in the School of Agriculture, Policy and Development at the University of Reading. My career started off very much with seeds and crop seeds and genetic resources conservation. I'm now responsible for the national fruit collection of um, apples and pears and so on as one of my little subsidiary strands. I think to me as a botanist, the the idea that there are estimated 50,000 edible plant species on Earth and the vast majority of us don't even eat 50. And, and 60% of the calories that we rely on just come from the seeds of three grass species, wheat, rice, and maize. It's, it's astonishing the potential that 
could be out there. It's not just that those crops are widely grown, but they're also widely sold in trade. Many of the big commercial companies will talk about something like eight major global crops. So in addition to wheat, maize and rice, they'll add in potato, they'll add in tomato, they'll add in, well, the fibre crop, uh, cotton very often, soya bean I've forgotten about. But there are comparatively few and that um, our systems and our economics definitely favour those. So, James, in terms of, you know, who's responsible, difficult to say these days because everything's changed. What became clear in the UK after the First World War was that government had to become far more responsible for food supply. It wasn't just during World War Two that we were short of food, but Britain was short of food during World War I as well. And after World War I, there were a number of institutions created. The Forestry Commission, for example, would, would be one in terms of the need for wood. National Institute of Agricultural Botany was, was another. The introduction of seed testing, better seeds, better crops was that motto. And, of course, the development of government research institutes, which took off during the Second World War in particular. And much of what we see in terms of the ability for the UK to produce much and most of its indigenous foodstuffs is the result of that national investment through the 20th century in government research institutes and the universities and advisory services to farmers, that continuum across all three institutes. And then after the Second World War, we've also got the Food and Agriculture Organisation created particularly in terms of warnings of famine and as well as action afterwards. And I think what worries me most as I've got rather older is that many of those government research institutes in the UK closed down during the 1980s and 1990s. And we've seen a lack of trust of governments in some of these international organisations. And so we've become far more dependent on the private sector. That's not a problem in itself until the private sector decides there's not enough profit in this. What happens then? Our understanding about even basic nutrition only really started as a result of trying to keep people fed in the Second World War. Our, our fundamental understanding of vitamins and minerals and how they worked and what people needed was very, very sketchy until that period. So it's, it's, it's astonishing how much of what we know as very standard science now is so new and so reliant on that very small period of, of, of time. Yeah. And also the, the continuum to the general public, the, the nutritional thing, it's nutrition is about informing people, you know, myself included. So, you know, I remember back to the 1950s and my mother every mealtime was telling me about the iron content of things, not in numerical terms, but eat this, it's got iron in it. Eat this, it's got vitamin C in it. And that came from the Second World War information from government, almost propaganda, admittedly, during the war, just getting into people the importance of certain foodstuffs, particularly plant foodstuffs, for good nutrition, good health. And of course, that what you're talking about there is the need for us to work as scientists across different disciplines to work, to work together, because in this case, we're combining the socioeconomic with the, with the nutritional and, you know, it's very important that we don't just look at the nutritional content of food, but we look at the people who eat the food and how they eat the food, how they prepare it. And also, I mean, the big enormous understanding of my life in relation to crops and food and nutrition was um, comparatively late in my life was the understanding 
about the way people's guts differ and the way the gut biome differs amongst different people and the, the role that the gut microbiome has in our ability to absorb nutrients in the first place. In what ways do you think how we talk about plants can be problematic when it comes to how we understand food? We probably need to remember that, that plants are chemical factories. And although we talk in the big numbers about the carbohydrates and proteins present, many plants have thousands of different chemicals present. I mean, the classic example, of course, is, is in the case of the cocoa bean. But coffee is similar, for example, whereby, you know, we, there are thousands of chemicals present. Some of them are actually not very good for us. I mean, we got there originally as humans because plants that weren't good for us tended to taste bitter. So we'd have a nibble and ah, and spit it out and so on. We do have good regulation in terms of variety control these days. And one of the things that, you know, a variety cannot be released if it has an anti-nutritional factor or a toxic factor present in anything more than a very, very trace uh, level. So, I mean, a good example is the potato tuber. Potato tubers 100 or more years ago they would actually have quite a lot of poison present in them, which we've actually bred out now. But we still do have some varieties of for sale that are traditional varieties that wouldn't be passed for consumption now. That's not to say, by the way, that they're dangerous to our health. It's just that modern standards for the presence of such things are now very rigorous. So in this really complex world where there are thousands of chemicals, many of which we don't even understand the function of implants, whose responsibility is it to safeguard our food supply? Well, I think it's a myriad of organisations, but we shouldn't frighten listeners into thinking that there aren't any controls whatsoever. Government still maintains the authority over plant health, plant varieties and so on. It's just that it tends to contract out the work to organisations in its part. We no longer have civil servants doing it, but people working in private organisations doing this under contract to government. Government is there to help train the individuals to the correct standards and to help ensure that the companies are actually enforcing the regulations themselves. Natasha's tragic story propelled food allergies into the media and up the public agenda in recent years. And it's good to see that our relationship to plant products in our diets is being increasingly taken seriously at the highest level, with scientists, public bodies, parliament, big business taking part in the conversation. We can only hope that this continues to keep research funding high on the agenda as organizations like the Natasha Allergy Research Foundation lobby to keep this a priority. My conversations have also made me think about how our diets are changing with culture, lifestyle, and the globalization of food supply chains. As a result of international imports and exports, our dinner plates have transformed. But does this come with risks? It's been fascinating to talk to Nadim, Tanya, Monique and Richard and hear their opinions on who we should be able to trust and whether as consumers we can be really responsible for the contents of food prepared somewhere out of sight, whether that's in a shop kitchen or a factory a hundred miles away. As someone who's fascinated by underused crops, growing and trialing dozens of varieties, I can't help but always wonder about the potential risks with introducing new species into our diets. 
the last century has seen an explosion in the diversity and availability of crops from around the world. From my London flat, I can order food from 20 different countries to appear on my doorstep at the touch of a button. It seems to me that research and education is key in connecting us to the potential that plants have to transform our lives. But above all, being able to trust that food providers are giving us what we need to make informed decisions. And Natasha's law is an important milestone in that continuing journey. In our final episode of Unearthed from Royal Botanic Gardens Q. Commercial trade is actually endangering the survival of certain species in the wild. Is a crime against nature a crime against us all? From the disappearing forests of Madagascar and the burning Amazon, I'll be finding out how our natural world is disappearing before our eyes and why putting a stop to it is a bigger game than we realize. Is it time we stood together and called out ecocide? I would be very careful of using that word. Most deforestation or changes into the forest that I see are being done because people are desperate, poor, hungry. And it may be also being done by us. You know, uh, we demand products from around the world and those products often come from land that was once forest and has been changed. Make sure you don't miss it by subscribing on your podcast app now. You can share this episode with the hashtag QUnearthed and follow at QGardens on social media. I'm James Wong. Thanks for listening.